Welcome to Making of a Historian, the podcast chronicling one grad student's quest to study for his comprehensive exams. And today I am behind in everything. And that's because yesterday I was behind in everything. I didn't set my alarm on Monday because it was Monday and I woke up late and I had a meeting and I had to go to a lecture and then I had another meeting and I got home at three and hadn't even cracked open book number one. And then all of a sudden it was like 11 o'clock at night and I was only halfway through book two. And so I had to finish up my reading and my note taking and everything else this morning, which means that it's 12.36 right now as I'm recording and I haven't even opened up book one. And I feel like I'm slowly falling behind on the constant book treadmill. And all I can think about right now is how quickly I can eat lunch. And then I hope that the books that I have on slate for today are straightforward and I can read them in less than two hours and then take notes and maybe possibly have some spare time tonight to, I don't know, celebrate Valentine's Day or watch TV or do any of those things that normal humans do. I really hope that it doesn't take another long night and that I don't push back my reading even more onto Wednesday. Anyway, so that's how things are going with me. How are you? Oh wait, you can't talk to me. Anyway, today what we're going to be talking about is something that is relatively unpopular in academia and even more unpopular to talk about in America. We're going to be talking about class, particularly the middle class. Now, in academia, their sacred trilogy of race, class, and gender, we mostly these days talk about race and gender and sometimes sexual orientation, and class is not as marked a thing as it was 20 or 30 years ago. But that doesn't mean that it's not important for history. But let's start off talking about the middle class because they're kind of weird. If I asked you what class you were, first, it would seem like a really weird question because nobody asks what class you are. You can just kind of tell by how somebody talks, how somebody acts, what they wear. And second, if I really pressed you, most of you would likely say that you are middle class. No matter how much money you make, you, if you're listening to this, would probably say that you're a member of the middle class. Um, in America, the latest polls say that 50% of us these days identify as the middle class, which is down from 60% of us uh, eight years ago. Um, but it's really unclear what that means in America. Uh, money doesn't do it. People of vastly different incomes from 50000 to $500,000 a year all describe themselves as middle class. And even something like educational attainment, which seems like the most likely culprit for a good definition of what makes a person middle class in America doesn't exactly fit. Only a third of adults in America have college degrees, which doesn't exactly chime with the 50% of people who say that they're middle class. So if you're middle class, you can be somewhat poor and without a college degree in America. There doesn't seem to be a clear definition. And if you think that it's difficult trying to figure out who the middle class are today, it's super difficult trying to figure out who the middle class were 200 or 300 years ago, like we do if we're historians. Of course, there is a rising trend of some people identifying themselves as members of the middling sort 
or the middle classes or something like that, but they don't go off and tick forms on census boxes or respond to Gallup polls or anything like that. And what's more, ideally, what we're talking about when we talk about something like the rise of the middle class in history is we want to pick out people who don't identify as middle class, but who we see as unconsciously being part of a middle class that is yet to become conscious of itself. So why is this important at all, besides the fact that most of us today identify as middle class? Well, it's clear that over this time period from about 1700 to 1900, the middle class is growing, both in absolute numbers and in status. It is becoming something that has an increasing buy-in to the public debate, to politics, to what it means to be a good life. And there's this kind of historical shell game that people play where they try to find when the middle class arises. You know, some people say it's the 15th century. Some people say it's the 18th century. Some people say it's the 19th century. And there's tons of arguments on each side. But even though there's disagreements about it, even though there's this kind of leapfrogging of when the middle class started, that kind of obscures the issue is that the middle class did come into their own sometime between 1700 and 1900. They did become increasingly important. And we're going to be seeing how right now. So what we're going to do is first I'm going to give you a quick definition. Then I'm going to give you some headlines about what the changes to the middle class actually were. Then I'll take you through two kind of idealized visions of the 18th century middle class household and the 19th century middle class household. So let's deal with the definition first. My definition of the middle class is that middle class people are families where the householder works for a living using some kind of capital, something that they own. Now this can be something physical like a stock of goods or a shop or some sort of machinery, or maybe even farmland. It can be social, like networks that people have that you might get with, say, goldsmiths who work with their connections of rich and well-heeled people and their knowledge about what those people's credit are. And it can be cultural, like what we might imagine professionals having. Uh, one of the problems of defining exactly who is middle class is that you want to include people like doctors and lawyers and clergymen, but they don't seem to need to own stuff to do business. They don't seem to need to have capital to make money. But if we widen that up to think of social and cultural capital, then these new professions fit firmly in. A doctor makes money by using his cultural capital, by using the knowledge he has of what a doctor should do, how a doctor should look, and, well, medicine. Same thing with lawyers and churchmen and all that. We can distinguish the middle class by comparing them with the lower and the upper classes. Duh. Well, the lower classes, they work like the middle class, but they don't have capital, or they don't have much capital. They don't have their own tools, or they don't have their own land or their tools or their land or their social or cultural capital that they do use to make money doesn't make too much of a dent into their earnings. The upper classes have capital, they have land or investments or connections, but they don't need to work. They can spend time doing high status activities like hunting or politics or, you know, composing poems, 
or any of that sort of stuff. So let's now talk about the big headline findings of these two centuries. The first is I want to call like the spirit of the middle class, if I can be like Viparian. And I think that that attitude of the middle class that remains for these two centuries is freedom mixed with constraint. Or maybe we can call it like pinched freedom. So the middle class is really, really proud of their freedoms, of their liberties, and they're free in a lot of ways. They're free to look over their homes, to manage their households and their businesses, to buy and to sell stuff, to fashion their own selves, to order their economies, to play at the great game of business and family, and to see if they can win. But they're also constrained, even as they're trying to do this. They're constrained by practical matters, like the credit market, which means that they are always at risk of going into debt, no matter how careful they are. And it also means that they have to constantly keep up the appearance of probity and good conduct so that people don't lose faith in them. They're also constrained by the fact that they don't have political representation. Politics is a game of the rich and the wealthy until sometime in the 19th century. They're constrained by the fact that if they're dissenters, which means not a member of the established Church of England, they're barred from tons of areas of public life. They're barred from church government and from local participation. And they're also constrained by the fact that the upper and the lower classes don't take their status seriously. Nobody cares about the domestic comforts of the middle classes when you have really super cool, well-dressed, upper-class people having politics and hunting and, you know, having affairs and being kings and doing all that sort of stuff, right? And nobody cares about the careful, diligent marshalling of resources of the middle classes when you can go to the lower classes and get drunk and party. What we see with the middle classes in the 18th and 19th centuries is a slow growth in numbers and power as the middle classes expand because of economic growth and then through economic growth create associations and networks that let them leverage this new kind of power into political power. And they come into their own in the early 19th century. And we can have a bunch of little symbols for this. One of these we talked about a couple days ago, the shift from awesome, colorful, amazing, courtly clothing to the sober, drab, and uncolorful business suit of the 19th century. This represents a change in the ideal of what a man should be like, from somebody who has passions and wealth to somebody who works hard and is attentive, from the upper class being a norm to the middle class being a norm. Similarly, we can even look at our monarchs. Uh, you go from having a, a fop like George IV, who just kind of gets drunk all the time and has affairs and has like a crazy public divorce scandal, to Queen Victoria, the most domestic of all domestic monarchs. She's famous for basically populating Europe with princes and keeping a Christmas tree. I mean, she is the most domestic of British monarchs until the 20th century. 
And what is this domesticity based on? It's based on ideas of middle-class probity. You see her decked out in pearls, maybe, but she's not going to go out swinging in the same sort of sartorial awesomeness that you might have seen with Queen Elizabeth, or even with King Henry VIII, or even with George III. And the last thing that I want to mention is one of these big highlights of the changes of the middle class is that all of this is heavily gendered. A middle-class man has a certain kind of attitude. He's stern, responsible, hardworking, forward-thinking, literate, numerate. And a middle-class woman also has a very fixed kind of social identity. She stays in the home. She looks after children. She keeps things clean. She advocates for moral order. And she fights against disorder and dirt wherever she finds it. So let's talk about the 18th century. Over this whole time period, one of the big things to remember is that middle-class people and lower-class people lived and died by credit. There wasn't enough coins going around to actually, you know, make up any of the daily things that people needed to do with buying and selling, so most transactions were done on credit. You'd go to a store and you wouldn't actually pay coins, you might pay tokens or you'd get your name written in a book, but things were done on credit. And this extended to tons of business dealings. What this meant was that everybody was enmeshed in this big network of credit. And this meant that if one person failed, it could bring down everybody in that network. I might talk about credit more later, I, I might have talked about it more in the past and I don't remember, but it's just important to remember how this specter of getting called in for debts hung over the minds of middle-class people. If you were in debt for anything larger than two pounds, you could be sent to debtor's prison at any time by your creditors calling in your debts, and if they did that, then you'd have to stay in prison until you paid off your debts. Um, and there's this actual reoccurring dream that happens amongst middle-class people in the 18th century where they're sitting around and there's a sergeant who comes to arrest them for debt, but the sergeant isn't arresting them for a money debt. The sergeant is death who's taking them to the afterlife. So that can tell you how much the weight of being indebted rested on the shoulders of middle-class people. Because of this, you get a bunch of cultural responses to the problem of credit and debt. And let's talk about how that happens in the family. Well, part of what families did is they raised their sons and daughters to have middle-class values. So part of this was to make them literate and numerate, to learn how to read and write and keep accounts. So kids were given account books and small amounts of money to invest so that they could learn the pleasures and the duties of double-entry bookkeeping. We have people when they're 14 writing excitedly on their birthdays that they got a new account book from mommy and daddy and that they also got some money to invest. And so just imagine that. Imagine 14-year-old boys getting really excited about getting their very own account book. They were put into educational institutions as well so that they could learn a trade, so that they could learn the practical things that they needed to know to get ahead in business. The most common one of these in the early 18th century were apprenticeships. People would pay to have their children sent to trade for seven or eight years to learn the ins and outs of how things actually were done, and also, frankly, to do domestic chores like making food and cleaning. 
But as the century wore on, there was a lot of other institutions that grew up to provide education. These could be things like dame schools, which were small informal schools to teach reading, writing, and arithmetic to young children, or dissenting academies, which were kind of, you know, uh, alternative universities for dissenters who couldn't get into Oxford or Cambridge, or mechanics institutes, which were these voluntary associations with books and demonstrations that taught people who worked with their hands principles of science and reason. And when we think about all this stuff that people had to learn, we have to remember that much business life was occupied in doing things that you and I take for granted, like adding sums together, copying letters, writing letters, getting information from one place to another, finding information like the price of a thing, evaluating people. All of these things happen almost instantly for us because we have information so cheap. But back in the 18th and 19th centuries, this took actual hard work. And it's this actual hard work that the middle classes are being trained to do and which in turn explains part of the rise of the middle classes. Because there was this work to be done, you needed people who were educated enough to do it. And women were educated in these things too, although not as much as boys were. Uh, this was because women were central to both the home and to the business. Uh, women would often work with their husbands, and they would be expected to take over the business for long periods of time, like when the husband had to go off to a fair, or visit a relative, or he got sick. And they had to be well-versed in the running of a business because death rates were much higher, and people had to make contingencies so that they could run their businesses when their husbands died. About 10 to 20% of all businesses in London in the early 18th centuries were run by widows. This doesn't mean that women had a good. Women could not own any property after marriage. After marriage, women suffered a kind of civil death. Here is the great jurist Blackstone on women. Quote, the husband and wife are one, and the husband is that one, end quote. Uh, there were some ways around this. You could get ways in which women could own property and trust, but for the most part, when women married, all of their money, all of their independence went to their husband. Another important thing to note here is how middle-class culture pushed these kinds of virtues of hard work, self-reliance, probity, forward thinking, and an end to dissipation. A lot of this was framed in religious ways, like the Societies for Reformation of Manners, but it wasn't per se about encouraging Christian belief. They didn't care so much about whether people accepted Christ in their hearts, but it was more about reforming the way that people did their day-to-day -day actions so that they were more timely, more thoughtful, more, you know, like middle-class people are today, more bourgeois. You know, they didn't go out to the lower classes with Bibles and hymns and prayers like you might have done in the 19th century and try to reform them that way. They just went out to the lower classes and tried to stop all of the whoring and all of the gay sex and all of the masturbating and all of the living beyond one's means. That was their big challenge. They weren't as religious as the people were in the 19th century. And so over this time period, there's a so slow moralization and secularization of the economy. 
In the 17th century, people might blame God for a business failure. By the middle of the 18th century, people were much more likely to blame the things that bodies like the Society for the Reformation of Manners were fighting against. They would blame buying too much, or having sex too much, or just being a bad businessman. So you have the idea of the market not as this thing that is mysterious or governed by God, but that is something that is amenable to human will, something that humans can actually go out and order themselves if they take on those good bourgeois moral middle-class virtues. So let's move on to the 19th century. In the 18th century, the middle class was there, but they were still kind of marginal. In the 19th century, the middle classes really come into their own. The moral reform of the 18th century was turned religious and popular. What was this idea? Well, the idea was that Christians should discharge their duty to the one another and to God based on their status, based on their dependence. A good summary of this is a popular Bible verse, Colossians 3, 18 to 22. And I'm going to read it to you in my most unpreacher-like voice. Wives, submit yourselves unto your husbands as it is fit in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and not be bitter against them. Children, obey your parents in all things, for this is well-pleasing unto the Lord. Fathers, provoke not your children to anger, lest they be discouraged. Servants, obey in all things your masters according to the flesh, not with eye service as men-pleasers, but in singleness of heart, fearing God. So here what we see is the domestic economy knit together by bounds of mutual obligation. Wives have duty to husbands. Husbands have duty to wives. Children have duties to parents. Parents have duties to children. And of course, you get servants there because of course, the 19th century household was not limited to genetic kin or even to the nuclear family. Another important thing about this is that work became moralized. Work was not something to be despised, but it became a calling. Work in the public sphere was a place for men to engage with their genius to create order out of chaos. The flip side of this was that at the home, this was the wife's area where she could use her genius for order to keep things well-ordered, clean, and functional. In the home, there were daily prayers, daily rituals, daily cleanings. Virtues were instilled just as floors were mopped and the washing was taken out. But this separation of duties with the men's duty in the public sphere and the women's duty in the private sphere meant that women, when they could, moved out of the workforce. They moved out of the public sphere. They moved out of being out in public and shopping and talking and dancing and doing all that, to moving into the home where their responsibility was with the children and the servants and to entertain the husband. Uh, you can see some of this in the changing nature of education for women. Women stopped being educated as much in business dealings and started being educated in nice domestic things like, say, taking care of servants and playing the piano. Another weird byproduct of this is the huge rise in the number of financial trusts and trusteeships. These were legal arrangements in which people were able to operate in the name of another person. 
Uh, women had trusts made in their names so that their money could be invested and looked after without them having to dirty themselves in the marketplace. Running these trusts, by the way, gave men a ton of experience in bookkeeping, legal work, ton of experience in business, a ton of social capital that they could then use to improve themselves. And women were being pushed out of an increasingly scientific, public, and specialized workforce. As work was becoming more intense, as it was becoming more regulated, as it was becoming something that you had to go to school to do, women were being pushed out of the informal and sometimes semi-regular employments that had sustained them through the 18th century. Of course, we have to make a big note here. This is not happening with lower-class women. Lower-class women were working more than ever before along with lower-class children. It's only the middle-class women who are getting the ability to step out of work. But there was also, of course, work in the home. A big thing about this, which we're going to deal with, I think, in two days from now, is servants. When we're talking about middle-class households, they had servants. Four-fifths of these servants were female, and most of these households, about half of them, only had a single servant. Only 20% of them had more than two servants. So when we're imagining these households, we have to remember the servants. We have to remember that people are coming into these households to work and to make money by helping keep reproducing this image of the comfortable, clean, bourgeois home. So it's this Victorian image of the home that we get this idea of what a middle-class person should be like. It's where we get the idea of the home as a refuge and the woman as the queen of that refuge. It's where we get our passions for interior decorating and gardening and all of that kind of stuff. Thanks very much for joining me today on Making of Historian. I have to thank Duncan Barton for making our image and Jonathan Lear for making our music. If you like the show, please rate it and review us on iTunes and tell your friends and do all those other things that you do with things on the internet that you like. Thanks very much, and I'll see you tomorrow when we're going to be talking about women in the workforce.